Knowledge is power. Last month I was in, I'm from uh, Washington State originally. And last month I was, I was over there uh, working, doing a little traveling work, but um, this is back in Austin. Austin what's, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in Austin now. I've been here for about a year and a half. It's a great yeah. point. Um, you know, mostly been inside during COVID and everything. It's just actually how I ended up here. I was coming to write a book and I was going to be here three or four months and then COVID happened, a few other things. And I'm actually about to get back on the road in September, October. So Looking yeah, so you're going to be traveling. Is Austin going to be your, your main locale though? Mm, you know, uh, Christy Thompson is here. Uh, she is kind of the, uh, we like to refer to her as a leader that we use a term called first follower, which is not really meant in the way most people think of that. There's this wonderful video on our resources page called the dancing guy. Okay. And it's all about how the person who comes to whoever had the idea and goes, that's a good idea. That's the real leader. Ah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like almost like giving them permission. Hey, that thing you're doing is okay. That's good. Yeah. And lets other people know it's also safe too. Yeah. Is it from, have you seen that video of there's a music festival of a guy dancing by himself? That's have the you, one I'm referring okay, to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. That's the dancing guy video. And I don't know if you know the origin of it. It's the most popular piece on our resources page, which has like 30, 40 references, including Buckminster Fuller and, Hans Rosling, who is one of the greatest statistician storytellers ever to live, who basically says we need to really relax about overpopulation fears and all of that sort of stuff. And between all those elements, they love the dancing guy more than anything else. <laughs> That's funny. That's how it goes, right? <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't get to choose what proliferates. You just got to follow what does, you know. Put it out there. You know, yeah. I think that's a good theme of, of anything we want to really talk about. I was on an podcast recently. And when I shared some of our point of view, you know, he said, I'm a Quaker and I'm a Buddhist and everything you're saying is stuff we've been saying for thousands of years. So, you know, how are you adding anything new to the conversation, which is a really good question. And I said, well, first of all, you know, we're framing it in maybe more of a five or six year olds version. You know, and as Einstein said, loosely translated, if you can't explain it to a six year old, you don't quite have it, you know, mm. Um, and I think that, uh, I think we need a thousand flowers on the topic of how do we really overcome war? It's not just enough to call it conflict. Like the way people converse is very warlike. Mm. And if you, as a generality, it's, you know, there's exceptions of course. Right. But as a generality, humanity comes from 70,000 years of war. We, we use language in order to make life happen, never mind change. Uh, and, and if our conversation is an inheritance of 70,000 years of war, we can't sort of really expect that we just wake up in one generation of the 21st century and put an end to that without a lot of conscious attention to solving that problem. Right, but, but building that conscious attention is, is, is likely a lot of what your work is, right? Accidentally, to be, to be really frank, but yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's, let's get into it. I was thinking, uh, if you don't mind, Daniel, I was just going to read your one page, just the, the first couple little paragraphs, and then we could jump off into it after there, just yeah, as a little intro. Sure. Cool. Um, so welcome, Daniel. I appreciate you, appreciate you, um, taking time out of your day to do this. So Daniel is the founder of, is there enough, a provocative new conversation about the intersection of survival economics and social justice, justice. He is also the co-founder of Impact Launchpad, a UK-based venture studio for social impact incubation and development. Working from a book, a conversation, and a unique social research experiment that has taken him to 22 countries, Mr. Matalon, is it Matalon, Matalon? Matalon. Ma Mr. Matalon is asserting that humanity's biggest existential threat is not climate change, tribalism, or inequality, but our inability to make agreement with each other at the level we require to address our challenges. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so, so what, what, what is your, what's your elevator pitch of your work? So if someone's like, Hey, wh what do you do? What is usually your, your sentence back? I'm working on the world game and turning it into a business model. You ever heard of that? And the person usually hasn't. And I say, well, 
was invented by this guy, Buckminster Fuller, who you'd know by the geodesic dome, but also had 50 predictions for the year 2049 of those 50 came true. He's certainly in a list of the top 100 minds of all time. <clears throat> and he proposed that the world game was how to make the world work for 100% of humanity. And he chose language really carefully. So he added some other words to it, like with conditions, like uh, in the shortest time possible through spontaneous collaboration without uh, ecological offense or disadvantage to everyone were his conditions. We stumbled on to posing a question. The question's really simple. Is there enough? Just three little words. And when we throw that stone in the water into conversation and has other sort of applications that are more specific than the generality of that question, it deliberates a conversation. And I'm reporting to you from thousands of hours in 22 countries looking at this, that takes people down a path of reevaluating what enough is. Not uh, abundance, which I was hoping people would wake up to abundance for 25 or 30 years lecturing them on why there really is abundance uh, and how that's actually the norm of the universe and scarcity is something I would propose that we manufacture. That's my point of view on the question of is there enough? But the deliberation of what enough is, surprise to me, turns out to be highly personal as well as global at the same time. I have no idea how it does that. Um, uh, but, it, but it was sort of the idea <clears throat> in the world game, Buckminster Fuller talking about 100% of humanity is how can one individual think about 100% of humanity? It seems impossible. And yet the posing of the question of is there enough has generated a responsibility in people that the answer to that question is their responsibility. It's their choice, right? And as some people reinterpret it <clears throat> I'm reporting to you now. Some people reinterpret the question in a lot of different ways. And one of them is, well, how do I make the world work for me? Comes out of this question, is there enough? Because it's not just 100% of humanity, but sometimes it's 100% of my world. This can be true in a relationship. It can be true in business. It can be true in a nation. So I guess the only thing you could say that we're adding to the picture is the posing of this question as a prelude to a new deliberation about agreement. Because if we want to make the world work, what does that mean, work for 100%? 100% is like towards a more perfect union, right? It's a, it's a calculus, right? It's an ideal. But if we talk about the work part, we define that, and other people would define the answer differently. So I want to be clear, but we define that making wealth more available for more people in less time is a trajectory we can absolutely measure. So my professional work is devoted to that. And okay. the question of is there enough just sort of came out of working on that strategy and talking to people and it just bounced out of the space and became a phenomenon that took me to 22 countries so far. Yeah, so, so in your travels, when you go into these different countries and when you do pose the question, what, what do you find? Like, what's, what, what's the response across the table? What, what is typically um, kind of the first thing that comes into people's minds? What do we think about when you, when you ask that question? If, if you don't mind, I'd rather tell you the most surprising response that's consistent in 22 countries, yeah. which people come back with, am I enough? Wow. Followed closely by, are we enough? Very big surprise to me. In fact, you know, I have a book coming out and I would ideally not want it to be thought of in a self-help section. I mean, we categorize, that's what consciousness is largely, right? right. Um, I don't mind that people use it though for personal transformation. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed by it because it's, an, it's, an, it's a surprising thing. So I have sort of more fun with that part about it because I know what my intentionality is. I think it's so important. And then there's this surprising thing come out of it. But uh, we have found that people engaging in this conversation can make their own world work better, not just the world work better. It, mm. is a, it does have a personal development transformation. Think about it. I mean, if, if you're able to make more agreement tomorrow than you made today, everything you're working on becomes better, right? Right, yeah. So, so is it is sort of so it's an inadvertent. You didn't intentionally write a self help book, but it is kind of a an automatic turning towards the self, like um, 
so, so has this whole thing kind of been a, uh, a personal uh, sovereignty sort of thing? Like um, the, yes. the essence of this is, you know, we have to learn how to love ourselves or, or feel that ourselves is enough in order for it to expand out into being enough for everyone? Yeah, I mean, people can watch this visually see me bristle the list a little bit as you came to it. So you see my apparent discomfort uh, with the concept of, of personal development as that aspect. It's simply that I think clarity comes out of the question. And when we have clarity, we can begin to make better choices. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. My, my partner in our business side of what we're doing, our for-profit social impact side, says people think that we're idealists, but actually we're clarifiest. Is <laughs> mm-hmm. how, how we think of it inside the building. So, so I... I'm not sure if that answers your question, except to simply say that people use this deliberation to reassess their values. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy without having to talk about Maslow, which is why I can have a conversation with a group of kindergartners about this, which I was once challenged to do. And and all I did with them, strangely enough, all I did was have a conversation with them about how they got their breakfast that morning. And every story was about collaboration. Interesting. So, so is that what you're pointing to? Is this um, this this expanded view of collaboration? Um, what, what? How? How is the conversation with the kindergartners an example of the wider view of what you guys are are teaching and and showing to the world? The purpose of this initially was to make the world work in an aggregate way, but of course, a five year old's not thinking about that. They're looking after their own needs, right? And if five-year-olds can look after their own needs through this human superpower that we think we have, that makes us more human than human, a step towards compassion before telling everybody they have to be more compassionate than they are. You understand that distinction, Mm -hmm. right? Creating some cognitive empathy before we demand, and there is a little bit of culture that demands a certain level of emotional empathy that I'm not sure we're ready to step into fully in 100%. But we can understand each other. We can tolerate each other. And if a five-year-old can understand that it's not <clears throat> how pretty you are, how fast you run, or what car your daddy drives, it's how you can be valuable to everybody around you. Like, that's a selfish thing. If you could turn that into a selfish thing, you see greed goes away. Hmm. It becomes unnecessary. Buckminster Fuller used to say that uh, if you really want to deal with a bad system, don't fight the existing reality, just create a new one. And conversation creates reality. Not always, of mm-hmm. course. That's why people have, oh, there's all talk and no action. Well, without talk, there's definitely no action. <laughs> That's new, right? So the question is what kind of talk will have the tendency to produce the most, what we would call action, obviously right action philosophically. Um, but it can be used for any action. I mean, anybody listening to my voice knows that an agreement was made to create a slave triangle that funded the world, right? That was an agreement too. There's some very bad agreements in the power of agreement, right? Agreement is power. Um, But can a five-year-old make an agreement with another five-year-old? Yeah. They just created some power. They didn't have to take it from each other, right? And I'll just say like power is also mystified. You talk about demystifying things or we could have a nice conversation about what power really is because, because huh? I was going to say, I would love to dive into that. Yeah. What, what do you mean? What, what I, actually have, I, I have not done a lot publicly for many years, uh, but somebody just unearthed a 1996 or 1997 interview with me about this topic. <laughs> huh. And uh, <clears throat> power is just basically the simple ability to get things done. My, my dog does not have the power to lift a cup, but because of his relationship with me, if I need to move his bowl for him, you know, he now has the power to move the bowl, right? Hmm. Um, so <clears throat> power can be created doesn't have to be taken. It can be taken. We can fight about it. But at the end of the day, when we're finished fighting, we're going to have a treaty, usually set by the winner, which is where your inclusion problem is in history, right? But it's the agreement that create the post-war is where the economic boom is, let's say. This is throughout history, not just after World War II, right? So the treaty is the engine that creates the results. The same thing happening in the United States, right? 
<clears throat> you're getting to the place where people are going, wait, actually, we do need some institutions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's do some deconstruction, but also like Bucky would say, you don't take down the system, you create a new one, right? Mm. It's just a waste of time. This is the thing that I think even people who have created identity with themselves around war, uh, inadvertently, right? To be partisan, you know, before values is sort of what that is, right? To be about my common identity with each other rather than what our common identity is about is a very warlike prep, prep, um, mm. you know, precedent. <clears throat> what we're, uh, what we're talking about is the ability to make power, not take power. You can use fire to burn down your house or heat your house. You can use a knife to, you know, cut yourself free from bondage and you can kill somebody. It's the tool of how and why it's used and for what purpose that, and if you think about it, if you ask the question, is there enough hash, it's a hashtag, is there enough? We, we put it as three words together, a hashtag, is there enough to, to establish this conversation and apply that lens to power. Is there enough power? Oh, you wanna see some emotions fly in a clubhouse room? Just talking about that. So it is this very general neuroplastic uh, um, vagueness designed to get people to, you know, sort of have this reassessment with themselves about their values. But you now apply it as a lens, uh, Jacob, to a topic like, is there enough water? Which our company, Impact Launchpad, has done about a 80 hours of research on new technology to produce <clears throat> mine uh, the atmosphere for water, not have to take it from the ground. It's very viable technology. Um, so when we have a conversation called, is there enough water? We'll bring some experts together and talk about that. When we talk about, is there enough justice? We bring experts together and talk about, is there enough justice? So it has this generality of stirring up the pot for people to begin to recognize that they have more power than they realize they do. They have more right. ability to get things done than they give themselves uh, credit for when they're talking about all the people in power that are doing things to them. They're not spending any conscious time thinking about what do I have the power to do today? And what could I have the power to do tomorrow? And the power to do tomorrow is only based on how much agreement I can create. I could force somebody into agreement. Yes, but it's very hard. Like it's very time consuming. It, you know, it just doesn't make sense. This is the real thing that I think can be a breakthrough is not just appealing to people on why they should give up arms in a way of being you know, great for humanity because only a certain amount of people think that way. But if we can make it in their personal selfish interest to make as much agreement as they can in their life, can you imagine what ripple effect that creates? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I'll just land the plane, so to speak, on this point to rally it to the personal individual and the psychology of it. Um, the first chapter of the book that uh, we have coming out in 23, and I say we, it's something of a community project in that sense, but I'll have my name on it um, as an author, is uh, it had an orphan chapter. <laughs> I didn't know where it went. And it turned out it was the kickoff of the book. And it was basically about uh, how we perceive our identity. Uh, I'm an amateur. I'm not an academic. I'm not a professional. So I'll say things in very simplistic terms. So it does a disservice to psychology for me to simplify identity in this way. But for this purpose, it makes sense. Because I'm saying that basically we are our history and we are our choices. Joe Dispenza would say we are our choices, period. He believes in that so much. I just found out recently. I feel we carry our history and we make our choices. And if we don't recognize and embrace that history that got us here, I think that struggle is very, very difficult. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I can embrace my history and also make choices. And over time, those choices become new history. And that's who we are. So that's really what the, the, this conversation sets in motion. Mm. Our goal is for people to have this conversation themselves, which is what we're teaching people to do. Yeah, I, I really like that. Um, uh, I was thinking a lot about what you said about identity. Do you think that um, would we all have to kind of be on the same page of what our history is? I mean, I kind of get down these rabbit holes of, um, you know, what, what, what are the pyramids actually? And, uh, uh, you know, what were psychedelics uh, to the birth of our consciousness and all these sort of things like um, they make me rethink what I was taught in school. 
I'm like, I don't, I don't really know. Like if we have uh, a unified version of how our history really goes, I mean, of course we do our best to put together the, the things that we have, but a lot of it is kind of blocked off by, you know, um, just different people with different interests and um, it, it benefits certain groups to not have certain truths or certain versions of stories, you know, out, out to the rest of the world. Do you think that we would all have to be kind of on the same page of our history and kind of what we are as humans even? Because I'm not sure that we all even, I mean, a lot of people don't really think about the fact that we come out of the earth, that we really are part of this evolutionary, you know, thing happening. So do, do, do you think that, um, I, I don't know, but, but I, I, just, I guess I just think about the fact that I'm not sure that we all agree on or we already think about that much our origins of, of what we are. And I think that is probably an important piece of the puzzle, right? It is. The, the, name of, the name of the book that we're putting out is called The First Agreement. People ask us, what's the first agreement? And I say, to have one. Mm. Let's start with one. Yeah. Okay. Um, the answer to your question about, do we all have to be on the same page to have one agreement? No, we don't. Um, is the history vastly important? That's why I included in identity. And I don't agree with Joe that we're only our choices, right? right? I respect him greatly. I think he's a genius, by the way. Yeah, I like him a lot. Um, but, but I think that uh, if you look at all conflict, as a whole, let's say 90% of it is all a debate about history. Just one sec. You're going to edit, right? Yeah. I'm on a podcast. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no problem. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so um, all of our conflict is about our, our stories. And we need to resolve those conflicts. We can't ignore them. It's vitally important that we get to know what the other perspective is if it feels other to me. Hmm. In order for us to mine through that for agreement, like disagreement is not not part of agreement. I don't know how you make new agreement without mining through disagreement actually. And I'm now speaking from some amateur social research at this point, you know, beyond my initial insights, whenever they were. Um, <clears throat> we have some sub-conversations in, is there enough? If you go to isthereenough.org, it's kind of an agreement academy. And there's a, like a link that says academy and has some subsets. And one of those subsets is called core conversations, or I think it's called the core or whatever. And one of them is that, again, this can be artificial at first. But if we started in conversation with our sameness and then our difference, we end up with a different result than if we go to the automatic, like, well, I'm different than most people. I've said that phrase many times in my life. I'm sure you have too, mm -hmm. on whatever topic you think that is especially unique, right? It's like, we want people to know that about us. That's us, like meaning me versus us, meaning you and I, which us are we going to start with is what it boils down to. The last chapter of the book is called People Like Us. <laughs> mm. And you can find yourself using that phrase organically, authentically, truthfully in life, in conversation. You're, I feel like you're probably moving in a good direction towards what we're talking about of this ideal value. I think the history issue is critical in that cognitive understanding, like we are our stories right? All of our victimization that we have suffered, all of us have, basically all of our stories, all of us have suffering. Hmm. And we don't feel understood because nobody's ever suffered like I have in the way that I have about this, this, We're this, so right? alone in our suffering, we think. We are. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's like true. Like, you know, who can understand your suffering the way that you do? Like Buckminster Fuller also said, he said, no one Again, this is a guy who made up words, right? So he chose every word super carefully, right? He said, no one has ever seen anything outside of themselves. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. 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 So if I can pierce through some approximation of trying to put myself in your shoes, if I can create some incentive for myself to do that, 
not because I should or shouldn't, or just, just as a game. Again, it's a world game that we're talking about. Not a war game, but a world game. And you can't yeah. have a war without a war game. And Bucky would say you can't have a world that works without a world that works game. So if you want a world that works game, it all begins with conversation that tends like, you know, the way we'd say that the arc of history bends towards justice. If you want a conversation that tends towards collaboration and agreement, it will come from me knowing your story as you see your story, not telling you why your story is not real. Even if by the way, your story, I would call false based on some other facts. Like I learned this from Jonathan Haidt, <clears throat> the, the righteous mind. For anybody who wants to look him up and study of values of conservatives and liberals, why why good people uh, disagree about uh, uh, religion and politics, basically. But, you know, there's this sense, uh, and I don't know if our way is, you know, the best way or the right way or anything. We need a thousand flowers blooming. But so far, what we're progressing on is stimulating a conversation where people can get to know what the other guy's enough is. That's basically what it boils down to when it comes to, to that. Uh, because what I see is not enough and what you see is not enough is absolutely like a fingerprint. And you can ask yourself the question what enough is in a, in a, a month from now, it'll be different. Mm-hmm. Where have you seen and then where do you see this um, maybe slipping off the tracks? Like uh, I think about, have you heard of the um, uh, the IDW, the Intellectual Dark Web? It's Sam Harris, yeah. Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, yeah. and those sort of guys. Um, I, I was really into a lot of their content the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and I really was fascinated by this thought of getting intellectual people who kind of think um, in a, a metacognitive way together and discuss kind of what's going on in the world and, and why are we thinking differently and how do we make sense of it better and where are our conversations going awry. Um, and I, I heard, I can't remember exactly who was involved, but I had heard at some point there was a big meeting of all these, you know, smart people in a room sort of thing. And it ended up digressing. Like even the mediator couldn't seem to pull it in. It seemed to be like a, all right, whatever guys, we're done. And this, the project kind of just fell aloof. Have, have you heard of this? Or do you, mm, I haven't heard of that event. I haven't heard of that event. I certainly know the, the, the crew and the people around it. I'm a, you know, avid follower of Lamar. And so, you know, I have sort of tangents into all of those rooms uh, from other people that I work with for many years. Um, and I think what a testament to how absolutely difficult it is to create agreement and collaboration in the world. Like, <clears throat> let me say this in the strongest terms I know how to say, uh, we are like alcoholics who haven't admitted that we're alcoholics when it comes to this topic. Right. We don't admit, can I tell you the number of times that I've spoken to leaders, you and I, absolutely admire and know are making good in the world, okay? Who I've dropped this conversation on at times and wanted to accept themselves from the crew who don't know how to collaborate. Because look at my life and look how I know how to collaborate. I'm about the identity of I'm a collaborator rather than looking at what's good about that question about how could we become super human at agreement? Nothing less than that mandate, right? And, you know, I'm on Clubhouse and I'll listen to a guy talk about 20 years of his research over three or five minutes on a topic, right? Really powerful stuff. And the next person who speaks will go, that's really cool. I agree with about 90% of that, but I noticed you didn't include anything about that, 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 right? This is common in conversation. So I can imagine, and, and, I'm, and I'm really not trying to judge people do that. I'm just pointing out, this is the thing, right? When you talk about history, everything I just said is history. Mm. Up to this moment, right now, every conversation I just referred to in Clubhouse is history. Mm. The question is, which is really why we ask, is there enough? When people have the conversation, the second question comes up. And the second question is called, what are we going to do about it? Right. Which you do not get to ask unless you ask question number one of, is there enough? Wouldn't make any sense. Because what are we going to do about it? The it in that sentence refers to what there's not enough of. Once you're getting to the, it's really the not enough campaign, right. <laughs> but it wouldn't work that way if we called it the not yeah. enough campaign. And so by examining what there's not enough of with clarity now, because we're not worrying about the things that really are enough of, that's a big thing that people get out of this conversation, by the way, is a lot of relief about things they worry about that they realize they don't have to. 
But once we then put a laser focus on the things we better friggin' worry about, like, like, you know, our existential threats to humanity, once we get to that place, then it's, what are we going to do about it? And you have, this may sound, you know, quite uh, adamant or fixed about that, but in my view, you only have two roads to go there, which is conflict or agreement, war or agreement. I mean, as Ben Ferenz, the last living Nuremberg prosecutor, 102 years old to this day, still living, who put the term crimes against humanity into law for the first time, hit the summation of his life, his law over war. That's how he looks at it from a, you know, his dean legal expertise. I look at it as an amateur non-academic and I say agreement is the is the every man's law a five-year-old can make an agreement but they can't write a law you see what I'm saying mm-hmm. and if we had that culture of that respect and recognition for what giving our word means and living up to that just for the sake of that even when it's inconvenient because we trusted the long-term economic economic value not just moral value I'll leave the moral side out for people who don't aspire to that. Let me just give you the economic reality is that wealth, not money, money's a part of wealth, but real wealth is produced by agreement, not resources. That's completely false. Mm. Mm, The idea that we would even debate this sometimes when you talk about history, we debate questions. We have no benefit debating like was climate change man-made or not? What a distraction that was. So much wasted time on that subject, right? And I think the one about about wealth is, you know, is wealth a fixed thing? Do do we really live on a planet of, I keep hearing this stated like it's a fact that we live on a planet of finite resources. I'm sorry, that's, that's never been proven in the history of humanity. Never. There's not one time we ever ran out of a resource we didn't replace with another. The problem is us, not the resources. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so where do you see? So, so after you guys get the, get this book out, um, are you going to continue touring, or like, like what is your what is your process afterwards? How do you keep keep having these conversations? And and who are the type of people that? I mean, of course, you know, podcasters and just inquisitive minds and whatnot. But who, who are the type of people you're you're searching for to have these conversations with, and maybe kind of um, you know enlighten through through conversation and kind of open open us up to um, even being able to, being able to have these conversations. Sure. Um, so there's a few questions in what you asked that I'll, I'll break down this way. Um, we'll talk about uh, the audience first and who we think they are, and then what sort of products, services, experiences that we want to provide to them. How's that? Yeah, yeah. great. Okay. So I think the people that are interested in this conversation, let's say the early adopters, are people who think of themselves as global citizens in some fashion. That's starting point. Second are people who want to make a difference, who have that part of their identity or aspire to make a difference. Um, That's our audience also. I think those two references is at least 100 million people around the planet already, Mm. which is pretty comforting to think about, right? That there's that many. And uh, there's another third sector, which are the traditional transformation-seeking, personal development, you know, leadership type of conversations. Um, I am absolutely not only a, a derivative of Buckminster Fuller, but of Marsha Martin. Uh, a name not a lot of people in your audience may know, but really should, because uh, she is uh, kind of a living griot, you know, a historian and, and driver of personal transformation for the last 50 years of, of some of the greatest consequence. She's one of the reasons why Est became a global phenomenon in the 70s. Um, and she's one of my mentors. What was her name one more time? Marsha Martin. Marsha Martin.com. Everybody should go to MarshaMartin.com, <clears throat> sign up for her $10 a month library, which has some of the most amazing transformational work any of us have ever heard. I mean, she has coached and been behind the scenes, coaching some of the greatest leaders that everybody on this podcast uh, uh, likely follows and listens to n- name brand folks. You can look her up, awesome. uh, marshallmartin.com. But I mention her because um, 
her whole life of personal transformation, I feel one of the greatest things, most consequential things she ever put out in the universe is that life lives in the conversation. You want life to move in some other direction that it's not what it is right now. It's going to be because of your conversation. That's a starting point. And, and our entire work is sort of built around that idea, which has been germinating me for 25 years uh, since I, I met her as a student. So I, I mention all of this because there are people who are highly transformed by this conversation. As I said, this is the thing we talked about before about the accidental personal development side of this. So that's a category as well. And we have something called the Agreement Academy where people who've caught wind of the fact that they can personally evolve through this conversation, who we just give them a little package of, why don't you go out and have a conversation 10 times, 10 people, do some social research with us, see what you learn from that. So it's a little program like that. So that's an audience as well. And that gets me into talking about some of the products and services we have. The most important, which that is fun, the Agreement Academy is very much fun. Um, but the thing that we think is the scorecard the thing that's most important to signify we're having enough conversations out there is the release of a treaty. Remember I said that basically treaties is where we create wealth from, not during the war. Um, and we call this the last treaty humanity will ever need to sign because to be signed by humans, not nations. We think mm -hmm. that's unbreakable. That's beautiful. It's a decentralized approach to self-government in the same way that blockchain is a decentralized approach to money and capital. Mm. And there is kind of a unique NFT historic thing associated with that as well. And we're in pre-launch for it now. So anybody listening to my voice that says it would be great if the world could actually work this way, a way that you can personally actually move that ball further, certainly following our social media, obviously that always lets the world know that people are paying attention to the conversation. But if you've looked enough at our argument as to why humanity needs its own treaty, and we make that argument in a, another product we have, which we call a survey, but it's really like a 30 minute walkthrough as to why somebody would actually sign a treaty on behalf of themselves and humanity. Mm -hmm. And uh, we intend to bring that treaty to fruition with hundred million signers over five years, we expect it will take us to do. And so we're in pre-launch for that now. And we've told the media that we're gonna get more than 50,000 uh, pre-registrations on the day of release, which means we need people today to uh, let us know they like this idea to participate in that. And then we actually surpass that and it gets onto mainstream media and we can really build this conversation around the world. So be a very historic act that people could make. Every time people hear about what we want to do, they have an obvious objection of how the hell are you going to pull that off kind of stuff. And our answer is always, well, we can pull it off if people like you can help us. <laughs> yeah. And so that um, is basically our signature product is the treaty. In, in pre-release now, people can look at the language of it understand the all on our website is there enough.org it's very clear uh from there and then they can decide if they want to support us just with their voice and of course if they think that the media we're doing is good and want to throw some dollars into it like any other nonprofit, we will absolutely accept that for people who don't feel they can devote as much time as they want to and they want us to devote time for them cash will do that for us mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i see that as a definite possibility i mean you know look at the the psychedelic world you know all the people that are donating to that and all the research that's being done to that and now that it's kind of the legalities are being cleaned up around it there's a lot of people who are like yeah, actually this makes a lot of sense we can all uh, help a lot of people in this in this um you know this whole area of exploring our consciousness and unwinding these things of our identity that the uh, psychedelics help us do um but yeah you, you do see a lot more people donating to um like even maps um, I can see it as a definite possibility. So this is this might be a question that's uh, a, a, a bit not worthwhile because I haven't even glanced at the treaty or I haven't looked at the website um, um, right now. But uh, so say I say I sign this treaty, what does my life look like after that? So say I put my name on the list, how do I live differently afterwards? Are my interactions different? Is my conversations with myself different? What, what do you see as a, a change after after participating in this? Well, fortunately, I can answer that question from real life examples of lots of people besides me who've been following this conversation for a few years. And uh, I remember the first time I had the realization, this is before the treaty existed, but the conversation had started. <clears throat> and my friend Jim was at an event in Boston, and he had heard me talk about this six months before. 
and we were having the conversation in Boston at the end of the evening. He goes, you know, when Daniel first brought up this conversation, I went home that night and uh, thought about all the things that there are enough of and the things that are not enough of, you know, and I realized I was fretting about a lot of things I didn't need to fret about. I started to realize the things that there are not enough of what I could do something about. Like it was just as if it was a plant, you know, in terms of me describing it this way, but it was this organic experience. And I found a lot of other people as well. Uh, The treaty is a great scorecard for us, but it's the conversations that produce the treaty signings in the first place. That's the real product of our work, right? So when we successfully reach a hundred million signers, People say, well, well, of course you'll extend that. No, it'll be 100 million signers because the product of that game is all the ripple effect of the conversations, even people who refuse to sign it. I've had people who look at it, think it's fantastic, but it's missing one thing and they won't sign it because of that one thing. Hmm. Um, Which again, gets us back to how difficult it is to find agreement. Like just because of one thing that they disagree with, they they, they can't, you know, and that's that's what it is, right? Hmm. Um, But that person who won't sign it, loves the work enough that they're introducing me to other people of influence and they're still, you know, kind of arguing this or that point or showing up at a clubhouse or whatever. And so what I believe the value we've done for that individual who didn't sign the treaty is in some ways just as important as somebody who signs it. Now, somebody who signs it, if we do our job right, that they really know what they're signing and continue to educate them to the level that they want to you know, have more information on this and deepen this the way that Jim had organically over six months is we continue to feed content and experiences and games and events, which are all demonstrating collaboration. Mm -hmm. And if Marsha Martin and I were here having a conversation together, I would say, Marsha, would you agree that a lot of our literature of transformation is about awareness? She's an, she's an awareness you know, guru, right? She really understands how to convey to another human being how to increase their own awareness in, in magical ways. But, but, but I think that all of the people that have written over the last 70 years of this sort of human potential movement work, very little has been put onto the literature of demonstration. And I don't think transformation happens without both awareness and demonstration together for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, which gets you that question of how come I've read all these books and my life hasn't changed? Question. So my answer to that is it's going to be up to us to take that audience attention, make sure that people know that they're making a commitment to themselves. It's not to us or, you know, Guru Daniel or (laughs) some sort of silly thing like that. It's just a commitment to themselves to just do the best they can to make agreement and really live up to that. Hmm. Um, I don't see how they could fail. You know what I mean? And I don't see how they could improve. Of course, some will do lots with it and others do, do less, but, but I think it's net human positive. By the way, the phrase that somebody wanted me to include in the treaty was net nature positive. And, uh, and I didn't uh, agree to that because um, I think that humanity's sustainability is about itself, not about the planet. I think that if humanity is sustaining itself, it will take care of the planet. I think trying to Mm. have people to take care of the planet versus humanity inadvertently creates a war between nature and humanity. Yeah. I mean, it creates a separation, right? Yes. And and, and I don't think we should be seeing it as a default, as a separation because we, I mean, in my my eyes, we are, like I said, we are of nature. We are the same thing as the planet. Yes. And, and I'm not capable of, of speaking from that place of nature, the way you evocatively do, I am very much uh, about how do we work together? Oh, we're talking about nature. Great. Let's do that. You know what I mean? Like, cause I love that because it's, it's the part of the people like us thing that I'm putting people already think it's too broad what we're doing, but to us, we're very laser focused on this issue. You know, that sustainability is about, it's like, uh, George Carlin, if anybody hasn't looked it up, has a great thing about that the, the planet will be fine. Just search George Carlin, the planet will be fine, that in a very funny way expresses this. Um, yeah. So uh, does this answer the question about the scale? Like the, the, the idea here is to make the treaty our highest record of the conversation in a way. And for each individual that signs it, they are able to you know aspire to a commitment to make agreement over conflict wherever they can. 
And um, we then are looking as a content studio because obviously 100 million people is de facto a television network in my view. Um, and so how do we create those experiences, including games where we bring people together a very little likelihood of agreeing and figuring out incentives and ways for them to find agreement without compromise. Agreement with compromise is not, is not what we're talking about, at least not to compromise values or history or, or tribe or whatever it is, right? I don't have to join your tribe to agree with you. We can find agreement first, you know, from where we sit, this is why it's history and choices together. Right. So that's that's basically where our strategy is, is that it, we will involve people in this conversation by creating activities and games and events and, and turning it into a television network. And uh, and 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 uh, our business model for it was will be that the audience will, in a tokenized way, own that television network uh, uh, some day near soon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really see how the, I feel like even just you, you speaking about it um, and me kind of sitting with, you know, the hashtag, is there enough? It is kind of this, I do see how it opens doors. It's, it's this, uh, it's this lock or it's this key to, to locks that like creates possibility of where, I mean, if you just, if you just word the question a little bit differently, there's not, there's not possibility of opening, right? There's fascinating uh, part of the conversation where, opening by realizing that because <clears throat> it's sometimes a different set of words that's the same question okay i'll give you an example our for-profit company is called impact launchpad that's a venture studio social impact venture studio and uh we ask a question on there that says how will we find the three and a half trillion dollars necessary to invest in the future of humanity and when i say necessary the sustainable development goals, you could think of the 17 sustainable development goals of the United Nations, for, for those who don't know what that is, um, uh, have a price tag associated with them that's estimated. We might debate on the number, whether it's three and a half or five and a half or whatever it is, but there's a deficit in what we've already identified needs to be spent mm. to save humanity. And it's not come from our existing sources being nations, philanthropy, and private investment. So asking that question is kind of, is there enough money? Where are we going to find three and a half trillion dollars to invest in the future of any? Does that exist? I mean, there's 24 trillion in the ground in the Democratic Republic of Congo, one of the poorest countries on earth that has, guess what? Not very much agreement and a whole lot of war. We have uh, something from seven to nine quadrillion estimated worth between real estate, um, financial assets, outstanding credits, uh, art, artwork, I mean, on and on before we start mining asteroids. So do we have three and a half trillion dollars? I would say we do, but we don't have the agreement somehow. Again, this is why this is so central to our professional work, everything we've talked about to this point, is if we had the agreement, some agreement, of how we'd actually come up with that money. We could invest that money in stuff we know. It's like saying we're not going to build that ridge or bridge or road, as far as I'm concerned. It's human infrastructure. So you take the is there enough conversation, you make it much more specific to that situation. In my relationship with my significant other, there could be an is there enough style question there too. And that really gets us when you talk about opening up possibility, which must take place for transformation, which is why Marsha, you know, is such a guru of, of possibility and awareness in, in her work. And so are all the great people we follow always about possibility. That is something we've taken out of our online conversation. So, so let me be specific. So it was accidental, this conversation of is there enough? But once I saw the effect it had with people realized it was a thing, oh, let's get a website, da, 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 da. And to me, it was always about the hashtag with a question mark, and you can't put a question mark in a hashtag. Huh. <laughs> and you can't put it in a domain name. We've, we've called these things special characters as if they're not part of regular conversation. Oh, is that any wonder why people are just shouting stuff at each other and telling people you're looking at the wrong facts? Interesting, yeah. 
And Clubhouse has been a real breakthrough and social audio in general, the Clubhouse is like saying Kleenex, right? But but Clubhouse and social audio has given us a way for people to start asking each other questions, which is why I think it's a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. You know, when first when Clubhouse first, uh, when I first heard about it, I had a couple weeks of just like spending so much. I thought I was like, this is the most revolution. There's something about this. I was like, this is, this is, this is something. It was a, it it took the social media um, condensing everything down and the, the display of kind of like the inherent virtue. I don't know. Virtue signaling is the best word, but the, the inherent like display that we all put on when we're communicating through social media, everybody's reading what you're saying, but you're just talking to this person. Um, Yes, something about when when the clubhouse just the audio only conversations came about. I'm like, oh, this is something. This is this is really cool. So, what what have you guys? You guys have had a lot of um, uh, would you say fruitful conversations in clubhouse and in these audio chat rooms? Has it changed the game a lot for you? Or for all of for everything we do, we look at it as social research. All the conversations we've had around the world and all that stuff. So this became a mecca of conversation for us as well. I mean, I've had conversations with some really interesting unsavory characters uh, on there that I've been able to actually make a little agreement with here and there. Um, Just because I'm always testing myself, how can I make agreement in very, you know, it's just kind of my jam at this point, you know, in difficult circumstances. And I've learned a lot from that. Um, And, uh, uh, up to now, we've just been visiting other people's rooms and talking about what we're doing. Hmm. And the reaction, well, let me say, it's been so strong, it's been a little scary. And it's it also unveiled something when you talk about what we need to learn and research and stuff like that. If you think about it, it's obvious when I say it, but over the last 15 or 20 years, the global world order as a concept has become a nefarious thing. After World War II, it was an aspect of creating freedom around the world with all of its hypocrisies, of course, because it's really World War II never ended. It just converted into another war. Hmm. <clears throat> but, the, but the UN Declaration of Human Rights is a really admirable document, and it's really mostly an American document. It really looks amazingly like, uh, like the Bill of Rights. Um, and like, there's a lot of Americans who've never even read it. So this is why I'm, you know, stating that it's worth a read. Um, but over the last, you know, particularly the last 15, 20 years, the whole concept of a global world order has become something of, you know, little men sitting in a corner, sort of trying to run world government kind of thing. Um, and I think it's made a safer environment for nationalism, which is very warlike. Hmm. And um, I'm talking about how to make the world work for 100% of humanity. So if you're very fearful about world order, I sound like an enemy. And so there were like a group of people that got together in a room and had like an important discussion about whatever Daniel's saying. And is he part of the cabal? <laughs> yeah. So so this, this is one of the extremes that we learned about. And what I like to do is I like to take a weakness and turn it into a strength, if I can, legitimately. And um, so what I've come to do proactively in my conversation is emphasize uh, that we're building a world game, not a world order, that we're engaging people to participate in. The only real purpose of is there enough in the end result with all the transformations, all that wonderful stuff we talked about is that the way you win the world game is you enroll everybody in the world game. Hmm. I've loved talking about Marcia in this conversation, but so much uh, that, that I'll, I'll emphasize her, her, her history a little further is when I showed her some of the work that we'd done, like showing my teacher, you know, this proud work that I'd come up with. And, um, and I put up two slides in front of her and I said, uh, how do you make the world work for hundred percent of humanity by enrolling everyone in the game? And this treaty and this conversation is like a baby step into the world game. And she looked back at it and she said, you know, when we founded the hunger project, which is one of, you know, the more important NGOs of the last, 35 years, um, which was founded by Est and Werner Earhart, um, she said that Werner announced to everybody what they were going to do. They were like a seminar company at the time, and somebody at the back of the room raised their hand and said, uh, we're going to end world hunger, how? And his like immediate response was, he said, the first thing we're going to do is persuade people it can be done. Mm. And that's all we're really doing is selling humanity and the fact that we can overcome our existential threats. We can survive. We do not have to go down this road of eschatology and, oh, the end of the world is a wonderful thing. No, it's not. 
right? We can survive. That is our job. That's what we were put here for. And if we can roll enough people in that as a mission, it de facto, I mean, we have some ideas about how to make the world work by, by investing in it, okay? Those are not the only ways to make the world work by far, right? So if we can just enroll people that the world game is their responsibility, boom, that's what we're after. Yeah. Wow. You know, I must say, Daniel, I, I feel, uh, I feel this sense of, um, uh, hopefulness, I think is the right word. It's strangely, uh, um, uh, because a lot of the, you know, when we, I think just the, the basic narrative of the state of the world, you know, is kind of this, um, nihilistic, like, I don't know, it seems like we're kind of losing our minds and we don't seem to be able to get on the same page and make sense of what's going on. And hopefully we face in the right direction. Hopefully somebody figures it out. You know, I, I feel like uh, the things you're bringing up in, in, in this conversation give me this sense of hopefulness of, oh yeah, we, we do have the power of, uh, uh, um, you know, just, just through conversation and inquiring and, uh, um, you know, discussing these things. We do, of course, have more than enough power to kind of handle the, the quarrels that f seem to face us or may, may face us in the future. This is... Um, I yeah. think... <clears throat> it's a thing for us to be highly compassionate of ourselves that in our fear of our existential challenges, we're being responsible and recognizing what those are. At the end of the day, we're still going to have to ask the question, what are we going to do about it as well? And, and I do believe that over time, we'll have less impact by getting to that question, what are we going to do about it? It's not uh, unreasonable or or unfeasible for people to be worried about, about our destruction. Uh, in 2050, it's estimated we'll have a billion people homeless and without a passport. Uh, I mean, just think like, uh, 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 if it was a hundred million was, was the, was the projection that would be a hundred times the Syrian crisis and look what that did to destabilize the world. Right. So, we're not even beginning to approach a really big problem. Like, I mean, we're doing our part to, to hopefully to invest in some solutions for that, how people will be housed and, you know, 3D printing and, you know, growing food on site and all that wonderful tech that's out there again, which just needs money and agreement because money is just an agreement. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, uh, I, I hope that it isn't just hope, but feasible possibilities that are worth failing at compared to doing nothing. You know what I mean? At mm -hmm. least agree with me on that, that it's worth trying to do something about, as opposed to just coming up with our stories about why we can't. That's, mm -hmm. I hope, the part that is giving you the experience of hope. Yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think it very much is. It's a, yeah, yeah. Like I said, just to reemphasize, just like the the door opening um, of, of this conversation, it does seem like it's. Um, no, you you get to see more lights on down the hallway. Okay, I'm gonna check out over there. It doesn't seem like there's any sort of door closing. It seems like, um, I don't know. Hope hope seems like to be the the word that sprouts in my mind. Um, Daniel, we are getting up here in time. I do actually have to head to the airport, like not after too long. Um, I would love to get like a, a, just, just one more summarization of where to send people, um, your website. Um, do, do you have a date for when the book is coming out yet? Do you have that, that yet? I don't, but it's definitely in the first quarter of 2023. Great. Um, people will see links to it on the isthereenough.org website, or they can go to the firstagreement.com. Um, I would encourage everybody to follow our social media so we can express to the world uh, you know, that people are paying attention to our conversation. I think the uh, desire to become part of our relaunch or our pre-launch and sign the treaty, they may need some more investigation before they do that. And I hope they do. I want them to knowledgeably know what it is that they're signing up for, so to speak. Um, and uh, I think they'll find, you know, if they're on Clubhouse, joining our Clubhouse room is where they can really engage us in conversation about this. Hmm. And then what, what is it? What is your guys' social media? You'll find it all on istthereenough.org. It links to all of our social media right there. Um, and um, and uh, if you even just join our mailing list every time we add, and we add, we're adding social media in, in pieces as we get community managers and all the various social media. Um, but uh, if they go to istthereenough.org, they'll find what is in existence right now. 
Gotcha. Okay. Well, and I'll include um, links to that in the bio too. So listeners, if you're listening, just look down below. There should be a link to what you need to go to and definitely check it out. Um, Daniel, I, I really appreciate your presence and your time and in your discussion here with me today, man. I, I really, um, I'm glad you, you, you guys are doing what you're doing and I think it's awesome. I'm very intrigued. Um, I'm definitely going to be diving through that website myself and I look forward to the book coming out, man. It's been a real honor being with you, Jacob. And I think your questions are so insightful. I can see why this podcast has so much attention. Thank you. Appreciate you, man. All right. Have a good rest of your day, Daniel. And then, uh, Hey, maybe I'll see you around. You're in Austin. So maybe, maybe I'll cross paths with you. Stay in touch, man. I would truly love that. And I would love to introduce you to Christy Thompson, who is that dancing guy, uh, individual with a fascinating story of transformation. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yes. Shoot me All an right. email. I'd love to make that happen, man. Let's do that. Okay. All right, take care, Daniel. Bye-bye. What age do we learn how to have better conversations? With ourselves.